On April 18th, 2021, the FPC community gathered together for a one parish, one prisoner storytelling event. This is a presentation by our OPOP, One Prisoner, One Parish team, about all that they have been learning and what is going on. Enjoy. Um, other parts of other people in the congregation can go ahead and catch up to everything that y'all are going to be learning. So I get the pleasure tonight of starting us off and um, kind of introducing us all to um, both the OPOP vision and the members of our team. So it is, um, the first thing is we wanted to kind of cover what is one parish, one prisoner, what is the vision for that? Um, one parish, one prisoner that we commonly and sweetly call OPOP. Um, it was started by Chris Hoke. Chris Hoke um, is somebody that Doug has actually known since he had just graduated high school. He um, has preached at our church before years ago, and he's now the founder and the executive director of um, Underground Ministries. And so the One Parish, One Prisoner program is part of Underground Ministries. Um, after working with kids um, who had been involved with gangs um, a lot through Tierra Nueva um, down in Skagit Valley, Chris made the connection that there are roughly the same number of incarcerated men and women in the state of Washington as there are church congregations. And he, he started to form this vision and had this goal to organize and equip churches in America, um, starting with Washington, to um, build up a direct relationship and support one person who was releasing back into their communities from prison. Um, on the website, he says, Chris knew that local community churches who are gathered in the name of forgiveness and resurrection have everything in place to meaningfully support people returning to life outside of prison. So I'm gonna say that again, because it's so important. Um, local community churches who are gathered in the name of forgiveness and in the name of resurrection have everything in, everything in place to meaningfully support people returning to their life outside of prison. So that's big things and small things, things like friendships and clothing, rides to appointments, job connections, um, funds to help pay for old fines that, the, that are just building and building, helping them get a driver's license. But most importantly, local community churches can offer hope. And he also realized that if churches were going to get involved with this, that the church would change as well. So um, Chris has likened the OPOP program to the tombs and this effort to the story of Lazarus. Lazarus and the rolling away of the stone, which is why we're having this meeting and calling it the roll away the stone fundraiser. Um, Lazarus came out of the tomb, regular people from the town helped roll away that stone. And then out he came and his grave clothes fell off and they helped him re-enter into life. And that is the goal of um, OPOP to really just help somebody who normally would just not have any resources or help and get them acclimated into life outside of those prison walls. So our team is getting to know Philip and his very beautiful wife, Elisa. And I do not have the pleasure of introducing them to you all tonight, but I do get to introduce our team. And we have an amazing team of people that we are just beginning to roll away the stone. But tonight, church, we need help from you all, from you people at FPC to come alongside us as we come alongside Philip. Um, and so I think that after tonight, we're hoping that you'll be inspired to get involved in whatever way the Holy Spirit is leading you. So without further delay, 
Um, people that are on our team, we have Cindy Wadkins who could not join us tonight. Um, Kathy Kipp is on our team. Brett Bauer is on our team. Anna Palmer is on our team. Linda Colodi, Bill Palmer, Pastor Doug, myself, and Pete Silly. And Pete Silly is going to kick off the evening with um, introducing our next little bit, which is going to be a video clip. Pete, are you in with us? Nope, you're muted. Okay, now I'm unmuted. Yay, okay. So, um, where to start? I became involved with OPOP because I believe our country really needs to find a different approach to the whole issue with incarceration and corrections in general. Um, I think we've become so focused on punishing offenders and we've lost track of the idea that we really want to rehabilitate people and we really need to change what we're doing if we're going to achieve that kind of a goal. In a few minutes, you're going to see a short video that's going to discuss the problem of mass incarceration in more detail. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about a few of the issues with mass incarceration that the video doesn't really spend a lot of time on. But first, there's a few, here's a few facts. The United States has approximately 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prisoners. Our incarceration rate has increased dramatically over the years. Back in the mid 70s, we had an incarceration rate of about 106 people per 100,000 of population. That number has climbed to around 700 today, 700 people, so a sevenfold increase. What that translates to is about 2.2 million people are incarcerated at any given time. That's a big number. It wasn't always like this. That incarceration rate was really consistent for decades until the mid 70s. What happened? Our society went through a period of rapid change. The civil rights movement, Vietnam War protests, the mass urbanization of our, uh, of our country, the transition to skilled professions, all these things contributed to a spike in violent crime. But the biggest factor was the normalization of the use of illegal drugs and the trafficking system that grew up to try to meet that demand for drugs. That uh, scared a lot of people and our political system responded with a wave of get tough on crime legislation. Long minimum sentences, three strikes laws, these things were all brought in to try to address those fears. And while they did have some positive effect on crime rates, there were a lot of unintended consequences. The economic costs have been huge for people who are incarcerated. Once you have a criminal record, especially a felony, it's really hard to find employment. Um, companies will just have blanket policies that forbid them from hiring felons. Uh, it just becomes very difficult to uh, get anything other than just basic employment. And people who can't see any kind of a positive future are much more apt to reoffend. Uh, there are lots of hidden social costs too. One in 28 children, think about that. One in 28 children have at least one parent who's incarcerated at any given time. Children in those families are much more likely to live in poverty, have worse educational outcomes, have less economic opportunities, and even have lower life expectancies. Uh, they're also more likely to enter the criminal justice system themselves, especially if they're minorities. The bottom line becomes that we're spending approximately $80 billion a year on criminal justice and most of that's to warehouse people. We aren't any better off because of that. And it really doesn't have to be this way. Experts across our political spectrum have um, really come to the same conclusion that prisoners of today will be returning to their communities tomorrow. And everyone will benefit if we prioritize rehabilitation over the retribution we do now. They think that these experts think that we should return educational opportunities to prisons and jails, provide training for today's job markets, make substance abuse treatment and adequate counseling available to all and maintain these services after people are released. We're not gonna be able to eliminate crime, but we can greatly reduce it with a new commitment to supporting our future neighbors while they're still incarcerated. 
And that's why I believe that, in, that the OPOP model is such an important part of achieving the goal of a more humane and productive criminal justice system. And with all that said, I'd like to introduce our video, Mass Incarceration in the United States. Thanks. Good morning, John. It's Friday. A few weeks ago, a company called Visually emailed me and was like, hey, Hank, if you could do a high quality and Okay, my thing is reloading. Sorry. <laughs> I had it all ready to go. Now we need to watch a silly commercial. Sorry. You can skip the ads after a few seconds. Yep. Come on. Okay, it totally worked this afternoon. I'm going to keep it small. Come on. Good morning, John. It's Friday. A few weeks ago, a high quality animated video on any issue in the world, what would you choose? Now, but I went with incarceration in America because it is messed up. Now, crime is also messed up. Bad things happen to good people, and that's terrible, and something should be done about it. Well, we sent people to prison to be punished and to prevent them from doing bad things again and to deter others from breaking the law. Punishment, corrections, and deterrence. Now, we have this habit of thinking of prisoners as something very external to society. After all, there are literal walls between them and society, walls capped with razor wire and watched over by people with guns. But millions of prisoners are released each year. Today's prisoners are tomorrow's neighbors. So corrections should probably be the most important piece of the incarceration pie. Unfortunately, it is not. We are, however, really good at punishment. America has about 4% of the world's people and about 25% of the world's incarcerated people. We have the highest incarceration rate in the world. Over the last 30 years, that number has skyrocketed, increasing over 400%. 41% of American juveniles and young adults have been arrested by the time they turn 23. Children as young as 13 years old have been sentenced to die in prison. And our prisons violate international standards. Solitary confinement increases instability and violence in inmates and is considered by international law to be torture. But in America, it's not regulated by anyone except the prison officials. No judge, no jury. Arguably the most devastating form of punishment we enact in this country, and yet there is no appeals process. And you think it's hard to get a job in America? Well, we make it intentionally more difficult to get a job once you have a conviction on your record, not to mention just to live your life. Life. Convicts are ineligible for welfare, student loans, public housing, food stamps, and are often socially disconnected from community and family support structures. So in addition to having high recidivism rates, they have very high rates of homelessness and suicide. Somewhere along the way, we started to think that being tough on crime meant being tough on criminals, but that's not the same thing. Punishment is only one piece of a much larger crime reduction pie. And it's an expensive one, with some institutions paying more than $100,000 per year per prisoner. Long prison sentences have helped to decrease crime, but no more than 25% of the decrease we've seen can be attributed to incarceration, and it costs far beyond just dollars. The cost is to people, to our country, to communities, to families, and to ourselves. The policy seems to be if you've committed a felony, we just give up on you. These wars on crime, wars on drugs, they are wars on people. The smart political move is to appear tough on crime because crime is scary, so we increased minimum sentences, we arrested more people, we sent more of them to 
prison. That's how we looked tough on crime, but the results are in its bad policy. It's cruel, it's short-sighted, and to continue this policy of mass incarceration would be foolish. We're living inside of a massive $75 billion per year failed experiment. 2010 was the first year in nearly 40 years that the number of incarcerated individuals in America did not increase. Policy is failure, but there is a long way to go. John, I'll see you on Tuesday. Let us introduce Kathy. Kathy, you need to unmute yourself. Hi, okay, hi. Um, you'll be sorry. Um, so I am, am going next, and uh, what I get to do is introduce Philip. Um, we began getting to know Philip and our OPOP team last um, October, and uh, that's when we began getting acquainted. And tonight, what I'm going to do is read to you the introductory letter that Philip sent from Monroe Correctional Facility last fall. Um, prison letters, this is just a little, a little thought I want to add as, just as I begin to read. But um, prison letters make up much of our New Testament. Many of our faith's central scriptures were written by a formerly violent aggressor whom the early Christians feared. Just, just a little food for thought there. But this is Philip saying hello to all members of First Presbyterian Church and OPOP team. Thank you so much for being oh, part of my journey back into our community. I wanted to take this opportunity to write an introduction and allow you to see as much as uh, you can with words who I am. My name is Philip Michael Christ. I'm 38 years old and from Firmdale, Washington. My life can be summarized in this way. I grew up never feeling like I belonged or like I was in the right place. When I was eight months old, my mother broke her neck and was paralyzed, and I never knew my father. My grandparents gave a valiant effort of raising me, but I was never satisfied, and I could never understand why I couldn't have a mom and dad. I always wanted what was just outside my reach, a normal family dynamic. This led me down a path of always wanting to fit in and consistently doing things to be seen. I began gravitating to other kids who didn't come from normal families, kids with shame and fear. I began hanging with gang members. At 13, I made a tragic choice to run home and grab a gun when confronted with five older rival gang members. On that day, March 6, 1995, two kids died. Denton lost his life and I was pushed into adult prison. At 13 years old, a judge, a prosecutor, and all of the newspapers stated that I was a hardened criminal and gangster who was beyond rehabilitation and was only worthy of punishment. From that day on, I cast out any dreams I had had to be a Marine, firefighter, or police officer and accepted being a gangster as my reality. I spent the next 10 years bolstering that image and reputation. I sincerely wanted to be a good person and dreamed of a bright future. But good people with dreams were not at the top of the food chain in prison. As a result, I've spent 22 years of my life in prison. I hurt my family by not changing my life thus not being there when they needed me. All of my family had passed away during my three incarcerations. My 13-year-old son, Julian, has grown up without a father. 
I've hurt my community by selling drugs and contributed to the destruction of families. I have blown amazing opportunities. I knew I was doing wrong, but I lacked discipline. And I created a delusion of being an honorable warrior of the struggle, of being justified in my behaviors and failures. I believe that no matter how much I changed, I would always be viewed as a criminal and not worthy of a meaningful life. So instead of feeling shame, I embraced the fire. And thus my life was until the most loving and courageous person I've ever met dedicated her friendship, love and life to ensuring I understood that I was a man worthy of love and family. Elisa, my beautiful wife, instilled within me the desire to want more and commit myself to the work required to, to save my life. For the first time, I have a relationship, a family, and people I'm not willing to lose for any reason. I have my stepson, Jacob, a bright, loving little six-year-old who sees me as his hero. The man he becomes begins with me. I'm responsible for his life, safety, and self-worth. I am the example he will follow. Since this realization, I have become a man of purpose and action. I have the ability and passion to do the personal work and discipline needed to truly succeed. As a result, I have stopped living a life of instant gratification, made a commitment to my wife, Elisa, son, Jacob, and to myself to be the best me I can be. I've earned my associate's degree in business management. I've earned my web development certification and spent more than 3,700 hours developing and facilitating a gang intervention program called New Freedom to help men find themselves and their purpose. As a committed leader here in prison, I have integrity and gratitude. I create the opportunity to cultivate acceptance, belonging, responsibility, direction, and trust to the lost youth of our society. By mentorship, I teach, influence, and demonstrate through motivation. I inspire change, confidence, and self-worth. And Philip says in closing, I want to thank you again for taking this opportunity to connect with me. I'm looking forward to getting to know all of you and learning more about each other. I'm truly humbled and grateful that all of you, your church and underground ministries are willing to support my re-entry. Blessings to each and every one of you. Let's do this in love, strength and hope, Philip Christ. And, and Brett next is going to go ahead and talk to us more about this process we've gone through of getting to know Philip. Yeah, thank you, Kathy. I um, A quote from the Underground Ministries website says that uh, in seeing the avoided parts of our heart, we find level ground with the incarcerated and find kinship so quickly. And um, I didn't really, I didn't, well, I didn't know I had avoided parts and I didn't know that kinship could come so quickly, but um, I missed the orient, the informational meeting on OPOP and uh, couldn't talk my way into the orientation being a, uh, just a test for me. Even with my role as pastor's husband, I was told that if I showed up, I was in and was able to just call in as I checked out of a motel in Wisconsin and took the meeting for three hours on the road with Kathy telling me I needed to mute myself because the traffic noise was interrupting the, the phone call. And uh, I, um, I'm all in. I feel like it's been the one, well, for me, it's just the, it's so clear that this is what, what God wants me to be doing. So it's, um, it's been, it's been really great. Um, and getting to know Philip, he's 
I mean, you tell from his letter that he's passionate and he's turning himself around. Um, and as we talked, I didn't um, know how to tackle this kinship so quickly idea, except just start telling him all the things that I might tell a therapist or something. And we we dug in pretty quick and, and found a lot of commonalities. We had both lived on Trig Road in Ferndale as kids. And uh, so we'd walked on the same roads and I had friends who had been in junior high with him at Vista, you know, when this happened when he was 13. And he, I was impressed by his integrity and willingness to engage with those people. And he's ready to talk to them. He's ready to uh, go out and kind of face the music here in Bellingham where it would have been, would have been much easier for him to go somewhere else where he wasn't running into people who knew him. And so he's, I'm impressed with his, his integrity and um, ready to jump in. He's, he told me just this morning that, you know, there's people in town that he stole from and he's, he's ready for, to queue up a meeting with him. And so we can go talk to him and see how, what kind of retribution, you know, could happen about that. Um, so uh, I'm really impressed and I feel grateful that he was the guy we were paired with because he's uh, making it easy for us. One thing that Opop, the other image besides Lazarus that he, that Chris Hoke brought up was the image of Christ trampling the gates of Hades. And Chris Hoke talks about the, he relates Hades to the underground and um, that that's part of what our role is, is in advocating is to help uh, people out from the underground. And that's uh, Phillips figured out how to advocate for himself a lot. Um, he gave us a list of senators and House of Representatives who we should contact. And um, they weren't all highly receptive uh, to it. and we were really uh, made aware of these hurdles and stones that need to be rolled away. Silly things like you can't get out of prison unless you have an address 30 days before you get out. And if you don't get out, then you miss a six month deadline and then you're in for six months more and uh, really tough little gaps. And um, as we were communicating with House of Rep, you know, with senators, if in Washington, um, it was both exciting and kind of disturbing how all it took was a few of us writing letters and maybe arguing a little bit with, with some house representatives and then the the gate, the hurdle just fell down. And all of a sudden he'd been told he couldn't get on work release. And then all of a sudden he's on work release. And so it's been, um, it's been very eye opening to see how much, you know, how much help they can use in getting through these things. At one point, I found myself communicating with the county executive who told me that the housing authority had their rules and so we should probably just follow them. And I, but by email, I argued with him that he was probably contributing to this industry of the Department of Corrections mass incarceration by just accepting these rules. And um, I think it's, as I've considered that conversation, I realized that, you know, we all have our complicity uh, by just accepting the way things go. So it's been, uh, it's been an honor to uh, get to know Philip and push through these things. I think that's all I have. Thank you. Brett, thank you. Um, I get, I'm going to take a little bit from, from where Brett went there. And I want to show you, um, I want to show you a photo and Brett give us a little help. This is an early Christian um, fresco. This is Jesus. Um, but do you notice the two pieces of wood on the bottom there? I don't know if you can see those. And I'm going to give you another photo because it might be a little easier to see them in this one. That would be, here it is. Do you see those two pieces of wood there? Anyone want to take a guess at what those pieces of wood are? 
They look like doors. They do look like doors. So Brett gave us a little taste. What are those doors? What's going on here? So I'm going to read a passage. And I want you to just listen to this passage. This is a passage that's near and dear, and that's a key passage for underground. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, uh, I need to just make a mention. Most of us hear Caesarea Philippi, and we just think, oh, some city. This was Vegas. This was idolatry-centered. Lori and I have stood in Caesarea Philippi, and we stood at the base of four of the most massive temples to Pan and to Zeus, and it's, it's, it's literally Vegas. So the, the question of what is Jesus doing there is really surprising. He is, he is up and he's walked uh, this long way north to get to this crazy place. And he comes to this crazy Vegas place and says, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but you... Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. This is the Hebrew word for anointed. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, put on your listening ears right here. You are Peter. Basically, this is a nickname. You are Rocky. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of the underground, the gates of Sheol, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So here is the question. Do we live in fear of the gates of hell running up and attacking a kingdom place? And the answer is no. And so what seems to be going is Jesus is saying, let me tell you where I am sending you. I am sending you to the underground. I am sending you to the place of death. And I want you to know that when you get there, the gates of Hades will not prevail because the power of God, the power of God is in you and you will prevail over the gates. You are being sent. And this is a wonderful old church metaphor. This, this motif makes its way through so much of the artwork of the early church, so much of what happened. And it's one something that we've lost. And this is the thing that Chris Hoke got so excited about, this sense that we as followers of Jesus are called to go to the place of death. And for him, as he had spent so much time in prisons, he said, prisons are the place of death. Prisons are the place of the undesirable. Prisons are the place where we have put marginalized people and we are called to go and the gates of hell will not prevail that by the power of Jesus, we can go and enter in to these gates. So that's the first story. And here is the next story. Let me give you a picture of it. I'm going to read it while we, walk, while we look at this picture. It's a great, this is my, one of my favorite photos of it. Um, you might recognize this story. Here is our story. Then Jesus, this is in John. Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. What's going on here is Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days and Mary and Martha have, they sent the word to Jesus and Jesus delayed for two days in coming. And so he arrives and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. Then Jesus again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. And then Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, ever the practical one, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they rolled away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. 
I know that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And what Chris Hoke has wonderfully pointed out, and I think is so powerful, is the disciples have really three jobs in this story. Their job number one is to roll away the stone. Lazarus cannot do that. Their job number two is to unbind the dead man. And their job number three is to really affirm the resurrection and affirm you, you have come to life. You were dead and you now are alive. And, and so as he looks at that, Chris has laid out a way for us as followers of Jesus to come alongside. And our first job is one, to roll away the stone. There are obstacles that keep people stuck in, in bad cycles. And the people that are in these cycles are people without resources. Um, you will notice that wealthy people don't stay in the underground. They are able to get, there are ways for them to get out of the underground. But Jesus is, but, but Chris has said, we come and we can walk alongside, we can roll away the stone, do things that they would not possibly be able to do that would be huge obstacles. And we can help roll away the stone and then we can help remove the layers of grave cloth so that they can enter into full resurrection. And then we can affirm Hi. resurrection. And so some of the things we see are um, getting driver's license, getting jobs, getting a rent, getting clothes, getting work clothes, things like that. Those are challenges that we need to do and we need to face. And those are obstacles that can be huge obstacles. Those are stones that can be rolled away. And then there are levels of layers that we all face with. And how do we as fellow disciples, how do we clear off the grave clothes for each other? And this is our chance. And we have found those grave clothes being removed from us as we have walked alongside as well. That's our job for each other. So those are our two passages that the underground ministry holds onto and that OPOP holds onto. And we have really found those to be very life-giving. I wanna introduce Anna Palmer. Anna is the youngest member of our team and um, one of the most impressive. So I'm gonna invite <laughs> Anna on board. Hi, um, I'm Anna. And I am part of the team and I'm going to talk a little bit about um, our fundraising and how that's going to work and also how that how we can be involved together in this process and help Philip and other people through this. Um, when I first read the introduction letter from Philip, I was really surprised. He showed a level of determination and drive for success that I haven't really seen in another person ever, especially not someone incarcerated. And I didn't fully understand what as a team we could do for him that he wasn't capable already by himself. And I was especially unaware about how I fit into the team not being an adult or really knowing how the system works. And learning more about the process of returning to a greater society after prison, I realized the incredible barriers put into place and how the systemic issues that makes recidivism rates so high. And one of these barriers is money, as Doug talked about. Um, for Philip and other formerly incarcerated individuals in the US, there are so many fees and financial responsibilities that I had never thought of. And some of these ones are driver's license fees, which I've learned about recently as well. Um, housing, closing, clothing, basic living expenses, and so many fees just attached with the courts and other things like that. And part of the One Prisoner, One Parish um, model is to create a fund to help roll away the stone and create a possibility to freedom where without financial support, it would be very difficult. This is where we are asking you to join us to help us to help Philip, Elisa, and their family with the expenses that this process involves. Um, this is where Chris Candles come in. Um, if you are able to donate $50 or more to our um, OPOP fund, you will be delivered or have a chance to choose a candle. These can be lit as a reminder of Philip and his family, as well as a reminder of the struggle that incarceration is. 
Our beginning goal for fundraising is $2,500 and we cannot do this without your support. Um, ways that you can donate are through a straight check to the church with the OPOP in the memo line or the OPOP fund on the website. I think Doug knows a little bit more about the app process to donate here. And just thank you guys so much for being here. And I know that we could never do this without your support. And I'm honored to be a part of this and have you guys with us. So that's all. Anna, thank you. That was so wonderful. Um, and I will just kind of say, if you've got the app, I want to just encourage you to, um, if you open up the app, it's this really wonderful little church center app and you open it up and it looks at your face. I'm gonna put, I got to put it in front of my face because it looks at your face and it's right there at the very bottom. There's just a button that says give and you just press that button that says give and it's got an amount. I'm going to put $1 and then it says next and next it says, where do you want to give? There's FPC general giving, but there's these little this little arrow and I press the arrow down and it says, oh, right there, OPOP, roll away the stone. And I click OPOP, roll away the stone. And then I just have to put in my bank account number and it takes money out of my account. It's phenomenal. It is wonderful. So that's great. Um, Anna is not gonna maybe push her candles as much as she should. These are gorgeous candles handmade by a young um, blossoming artist. So we are so excited about these. We call them Christ candles. We invite you to get one um, and to light it and remember to pray for Philip and his family. And this is a chance to remember the Philip and that. So the candles have already been a big hit and there are more of them. Anna has already um, is made about 30 to 40 of them. So my goal is that those would all be gone in a month. So that's our goal. We can pass the word on, but these are candles. These are be beautifully clay ceramic thrown candles with wax in them. Um, really a very special thing. And I as well want to say, we are really excited about this. I'm going to put this up, see if anyone recognizes this. Um, anyone recognize this at all? If you watched our Easter service, Maybe. this is the this is the painting Nikki did during our Easter service. She has donated this to OPOP and we are auctioning this off. This can be your chance to have an original Nikki Lang painting. We will have a way for you to put in an auction for that. Um, these paintings of this size tend to go for about $700 when Nikki paints them. So huge, incredible gift that she's given us. And for those of us who watched the service, it was so moving. Um, to see this being painted and you can have a piece of Easter in your house. So we're excited about that. We will be sharing in the church service next week about how you can get involved in the silent auction for that. Um, and that's something that we're also incredibly excited. Linda is going to just close off with just telling a little bit about what we have been doing as a team. Linda Colodi. There, got this side. Hi. Our team has been meeting since last August, and uh, I think I've got, I'm unmuted, yes. Sorry, I'm just trying to get rid of the things on the screen here in front of me. And you might be surprised what we've been doing. You know, as churches, we tend to work, jump right into how are we going to solve problems for somebody. But most of our training, you know, most of what we've been doing since August involves around just a few things. We have meetings, most of which for most of the meetings was about training. If most OPOP teams have a couple of years to get to, to be writing, to be building relationships, to be building trust with the person, um, the prisoner they're relating to, we've only had eight months. So we've been doing training modules two at a time and they've been important. Some of it's the practical stuff you might pick, you know, how, how, how do you do a housing plan? How do you do a reentry plan? But they've actually just recently come up. Most of the other stuff we've been studying is learning how important the relationship building is. Not We're not there to solve problems for Philip. We're, although there is a place that there is a place we enter in, the most important thing we've been doing is relationship. We had a whole module on success and basically about stepping out of our ideas of success because then we tend to make everything about us. And again, the relationship part is just really important for us. We did one on the lost art of letter writing because most of what we have been doing is all of us writing letters with Philip, getting letters back, getting to know him, getting having him know us because it's really important. If it were any normal year, we would have spent a lot of time on the, the module having to do with go making 
phone calls and visits in the prison, but with COVID and the visiting not being allowed and there being very limited time for video access, in the end, we had Brett doing all of the, the video or phone calls because anything else might have taken away from his time with his um, wife, uh, the time she had. So it was an odd year. Um, we've also learned more about trauma and healing, and you may have heard a little bit of what affected Philip. And I know from women I've talked to in the jail that trauma is way more there than most people realize. Addiction certainly an issue. And lots of other things going on. And just in the last month or two, we've started entered, entering into what we probably thought was the work part all along. It's still the less important part than building relationship, but it has started, you know, we thought we'd have the big battle on housing and Brett did a great job of leading the charge on that. And Philip has the great good fortune to be moving in back in with his wife. And I know with some of the people I have known getting out of jail or prison that that housing step is a thing that lead or not having housing leads to just leads to failure right off the bat. It's just huge to have housing and to have housing with somebody that loves you is doubly huge. You have just no idea. And again, that's relationship. We had, uh, again, an unusual kind of thing. Um, Elisa, his wife has been in on almost all of our meetings. So it's been this kind of funny time of getting know, to know her also and, um, and trying to be respectful, even though, you know, we're still learning what it means to be in this kind of relationship. So that's been really interesting for us. We've been getting to know each other and, you know, what the gifts the different people bring to the table are. And it's been really great to have a team our size and with quite a variety of gifts and skills, you know, um, and voices at the table. I've kind of sometimes not envied uh, Philip because he's been having to write to nine of us you know, we only have to write to one, but he's been very faithful in all of that. And that's been one of the things I really liked about him. Very open, very faithful, very, um, you know, really a good person to write to. Um, but we do get to a point that we need money because it's just, these things are just impossible hurdles at this point, right when you get out of prison. We're still gonna focus on relationship because I know that you go from having in prison, everything determined for you, and then all of a sudden you get out and you want to, and boy, I'll tell you, Philip's intense about it. He wants to get that job. He wants to support his family and you want to do all of this stuff. And there are still a lot of frustrations and, and things that don't go right. And if, if that happens in regular light, it, it, he is still under the prison system and will be for quite a bit longer. There are plenty of ways to have frustrations, but we can help relieve some of that frustration just by being there relationally for him. And that's what we're doing. We are going to be looking for things in the congregation. Um, we may, I, we've been talking to him about whether a meal train might be helpful because his wife works um, full time. She's, you know, they've got the one son and they're gonna be having other of her children coming to visit. So it's going to be a very busy household. And we were thinking if they are willing, meal train might be one of the ways that we can kind of ease the stress of that. Because uh, if we can take the stress level down, the whole thing will go better. Um, uh, we may have driving, although I guess we can't do that right now, and, and job opportunities. Um, if you know possible job opportunities, um, just let us know or, and we can let Philip know because the job is a big deal right now. Um, we'll probably have other things too. So if you know you might have something that would be a good gift or a good way to get to know them, that might be, you know, uh, you know, we'll be looking for just, there's just all kinds of things, you know, mechanics for cars or um, I'm not even sure, you know, we don't even know the extent of what might come up as we move ahead. But it's been, um, Chris always emphasizes this, it's a process of mutual transformation. And I think, I know I can speak for myself, probably other people, it is transforming, you know, this, this coming up against the barriers you had, um, uh, you know, the barriers inside your own mind, your preconceptions about what a prisoner is or what a felon is. Um, um, a lot of that is already starting to be broken. And we're starting to look at, you know, we have, there, we have a lot in common. I was going to say, my, one of my, my little stories with Philip is, I, I'm not a person that necessarily goes out and looks for what I have in common. I don't always expect it. But his second letter came to me and he says, oh, you know, I like to do beading and reading. And I thought, 
I didn't, you could have cut that out of a letter. I didn't, hadn't, didn't say that to him because I thought he wouldn't be interesting, but beading reading are two of my favorite hobbies. So right off the bat, I found um, a hobby I would have never expected from this guy um, in prison, but a beater and a reader, just like me. So he's, uh, so it's been really, it's been a lot of different stuff going on and, um, um, and it's covered a lot of ground um, for spiritual growth, contemplation. The prayer that we do is very con contemplatively oriented because we're looking for the ways that we are peaceful. We learn to learn, uh, listen to God. And, you know, we're hoping the people were, you know, that are the Philip or whoever else is also listening to God. And we know that God speaks to us equally as children. And, and that's part of our transformation also. So anyway, um, that's kind of where we are so far. We're looking into getting more now that he's out and we're entering another stage of the journey and we are not experts at it yet. And so we will be looking, seeing what happens next. And we're looking to share that with the rest of you. Yeah, let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you. You're so grateful. Spent the last hour celebrating the uh, new relationship we have with Philip and Elisa and Jacob. And I just pray blessings on them and on their home. I pray that you would give uh, Philip a uh, wisdom beyond himself as he seeks work. I pray that you would bless him with work, that uh, you would find a place that he can have impact. Uh, use his gifts. All about a new start here, Father, for him and also a start for us as we walk with him and pray that you would also fill us, give us wisdom to know how to support him. And also give us, uh, give all of us perspective of uh, we see Philip and new beginning and the stone rolled back him being freed, I just pray that you would give us uh, uh, the same sense of awareness that you've rolled the stone back in, in our lives as well, and that we would have the same excitement about being freed to go forward and uh, live a life that brings glory to you and that pleases you. So we pray that his life with Elisa that begins now is one of joy, of peace, of uh, fulfillment, security, and pray that as we walk along with him, that we can be learning from him and celebrating together uh, as we all grow in you. So thank you for this time. Thank you for your, uh, your love for us, the love we have for each other that we can now welcome welcome Philip and Elisa into, and just pray that you would keep us all in your care. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, Bill. Thanks for listening to another FPC podcast. We encourage you to subscribe every week. You will be receiving some of the interviews that we do, as well as the sermon, as well as some of the music that we have. And we are also including some FBC special events. We encourage you to subscribe. Thanks for listening.